This is Tommy's Outdoors 125. My name is Rachel. And if you like this show, you might like my podcast, Hidden Wings and Bloodlust, which is a podcast all about ladybirds and ladybugs around the world. I not only interview guests, but I also do solo episodes all about different ladybirds and aspects of their lives. And now, back to Tommy, who will talk about seabird surveys with Professor Stuart Bearhop and Dr. Kendrew Calhoun. Enjoy. Guys, welcome to Tommy's Outdoors. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Good afternoon. I think as usually in these those cases, the only fair way to start is with a round of introductions. So introduction to our listeners so they know who they're dealing with. Well, I'll go first then, Kendrew. Um, my name is Stu Beerhop. Um, I'm a professor of animal ecology at the University of Exeter. Uh, and uh, I headed up a couple, well, three, two work packages uh, around uh, surveying seabirds in the west of Scotland. These are these are Marpam packages. Yeah, Marpam, package. which is this in- big interreg funded project. And, and my name's Kendrew Cahoon, and I have been uh, involved in the Marpam project since uh, about a year in. My role has been various things. It's always involved in the, in the sort of bird seabird end of things. Um, and but I've been with, I've jumped between various of uh, of the project partners during that the last couple of years. So my role uh, with, for example, with Stuart's project has been helping AFBE and helping Stuart and team do their uh, these externally funded pieces of work that that either Exeter or the British for Ornithology have done most of. So that's my kind of role in things. So folks, like in, in general, what consists of this work package and then how it feeds into the a larger MARPAM project? So there are five work packages in MARPAM uh, and the one that Stuart and I are involved in are as, as T1, it's about seabird monitoring, modeling and so on. Other ones are on all sorts of things, including you know sedimentology and oceanography and 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 so on, and actually marine management planning. The idea behind the T one work package, the seabirds focused one, is really about um, co- collecting and working with the data through either monitoring uh, population trajectories, population sizes, distribution, and maybe modelling their movements through you know tracking types of work. Uh, that is designed to inform the other work packages for for example the marine management planning elements so the the work that uh the steward and and uh, his colleagues from exeter uh, a very big piece of work uh, was involved with part of this um population monitoring work that is basically what what is seems a rather basic but it's a, a gargantuan task of monitoring the health of seabird populations in an area that is remote, difficult, awkward, uh, and and hasn't been done for a decade. So uh, Stuart took the took grasp that project by the neck and has been uh, and I'm sure he'll describe the detail of that uh, doing that sort of work in the west coast of Scotland last summer. It's been knocked by COVID, of course, that like many elements of the project. And in terms of kind of 
where it fits into the bigger picture is obviously we were doing bits of pieces of that sort of work in Northern Ireland as well, but there was a big gap in West Coast of Scotland uh, that needed external expertise. Uh, and I'll now point that in Stuart's direction because he is the man I'm pointing at. Yeah, so there was kind of three sets of three sets of seabirds we were serving. We were we were picking up some of the cliff nesting seabird surveys that had been missed in, in the large scale survey that was undertaken just prior to COVID. So there was a few gaps in that survey that needed filled around the island of Sky, small isles, rum and muck, and then um, some of the islands around the Outer Hebrides, some of the more remote islands around the Outer Hebrides, like the Flannan Islands and places like that. Um, there was a large survey of the, 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 the ground nesting seabirds on Lewis. There's a big moorland in the north of Lewis where birds like skews and terns and gulls nest. And that was a, a, a huge piece of work where we had about a dozen people walking 20-mile transects daily for about a week to cover the entire uh, area. And then a, a much more complex set of, of data collection of burrow nesting shearwaters and petrels. And that is really kind of, certainly after the field work, that was the stuff that took most of our time because it was really a very complex modeling exercise and data annotation exercise post collection so the collection was really just the start of it the analysis was what really took most of our efforts and that really took up well it was originally going to be a two-year project crammed into one so it really took up the last six months of and a lot of work on you know by a couple of other people uh who'd putting most of the work into that who aren't here today, but they did a lot of the work involved in that. What are you expecting to see from those models? So what's the what's the purpose of those models? Is it is it prediction of the population growth dynamics or or is it like migration patterns or it's everything? It's really unsatisfying. It's a single number that, that is the number of seabirds that we think of that species are on a given island. So um, in, in this instance, these approaches allow us to, to uh, not just give a single number, but say, well, we think this number lies within this range because we have lots of sources of error. Because essentially what we're doing there is, if you imagine one of, this, one of the species we were trying to estimate the population size of was the Manx Shearwater, which nests in the mountains of Rum. And the mountains of Rum are, you know, about eight, nine hundred, eight hundred meters, let's say, and they are quite <laughs> precipitous and there's, the birds are nesting in lots of places we can't get to. So we can't count every single burrow. They, I, know, I should have also said they nest inside burrows, so they're not even visible. They only come ashore at night. So what you can't do is count every single bird that's there. You have to do indirect approaches. And that involves all sorts of things like finding burrows, playing recordings down burrows, sticking um, um, cameras down burrows to see if they're occupied. And... There's lots of sources of uncertainty in that part. There's also then we can't visit every area of the bird's nest, partly because we don't have time and it's logistically very challenging and partly because they're in places that our health and safety executives would not allow us near. <laughs> and so it involves uh, lots of uncertainty. And so what we're doing here is we're saying, well, we know how many occupied burrows there is in this square we've counted. How many such squares exist on the, on, on the island? And we have to use... Uh, we have to use essentially a, 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 a geographic information system where we look at satellite photographs and we map our densities onto pixels from the satellite photographs and then we build a model that predicts density and then we extrapolate that across the size of the colony but then we have to multiply up the uncertainty we have about whether a borough is occupied or not because 
you play the tape and not all birds respond. And so it becomes quite a complex process. So we end up with actually quite honest numbers, but quite unsatisfying numbers. Um, you know, we have quite large sources of error. And it's the same with the petrol counts. It's just slightly easier to do the petrol counts. But the modelling exercise post-petrol count is, is, is just as complicated. Yeah, this is this is this thing where people are uh, talking about the number of birds or number of bears or number of deers. Like, tell me how many it is. Like twenty five thousand twenty seventy one, yeah. right? And there's like, no, 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 no. It's just a. That's how many you counted. That's not how many there are. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And 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 it's tricky because, of course, when you when you get something like twenty nine thousand three hundred thirty one, it suggests that you have the ability to know that to the nearest bear how many bears there are. But of course, there's a level, all, there's no way in these single counts of actually assessing where the error lies. The great thing about these, these, these approaches we do with the petrels and shearwaters is that we know where the error is. And so we can provide a count with some uncertainty. Now, that becomes less satisfying because there is so much uncertainty in these models. For example, we, we're not really 100% sure of the area occupied by the shearwaters on rum, because again, some of the areas you just can't get to because they're, they're at the bottom of cliffs and things like that. So we have to we have to allow for some uncertainty there as well. So in, in the Max Shearwater instance, I can dig the figures out for you. I haven't got them to hand at the moment. I should have done that. I'll dig them out for you. But it, it, it was a big number. It's like 200 plus thousand birds. And our estimate was was a good bit higher than the previous estimate, largely because we think the colony is much bigger than it than it was previously, or than was previously surveyed. We're not really sure whether the colony was always bigger and one bit wasn't surveyed or whether that bit has been uh, colonized in, in, in more depth in recent years. Gotcha. And tell me, is once you have this number and you have some you know, approximation or extrapolation of the data, are you also able to predict or, or estimate the growth or the trend trend of the population whether it's declining whether it's declining or whether it's growing because this is kind of ties to the question you know when was the last survey done and and we already heard that there was like a decades ago or something like that so i'm curious if you're able to predict population dynamic from what you're doing <laughs> so this has been a bit of a bone of contention well not a bone of contention it's been a lot we spent a lot of time discussing this um so for the counts for the for the direct counts of birds on cliffs and birds nesting on on moorland, yes, there's a direct comparison. And we can directly compare those two previous studies because the, the method is identical. And uh, there were some stories, like we, we saw a, a, a dramatic reduction in fulmers around those coasts. The fulmer petrels have kind of declined a lot, and we're not really sure why. Although we do know that white-tailed eagles like eating foamers and there's a lot more white-tailed eagles up there now, but that is purely it's, it's purely correlative at the moment. Um, but with the petrels and the shearwaters, it, it becomes a bit more problematic uh, because we were applying, uh, you know, you can imagine that 20 years is a long time. Our ability to, uh, the, the power in computers has increased dramatically that time, so we can actually... Uh, deploy much more complex models than we used to. Um, and endoscopes are are 
you can buy endoscopes to stick cameras down burrows nowadays for a few hundred quid, whereas they were costing tens of thousands of pounds, you know, 20 years ago. So technology means that, that, that we can survey these things in, in quite different ways to the way they used to. And so we, uh, in, in conjunction with Kendra and other people on the, the steering group, we decided to go for the most uh, up-to-date mode of, or use the most up-to-date techniques for assessing population size. And of course, that does mean that, it's slightly tricky to set the numbers we've counted in, in, a, in a historic context. Although we did do retrospective fits using approximations of the previous techniques. And for the shear waters, there's probably been a bit of an increase, but it, it, you know, if, if, we, if, we, if we take just the area of colony that was counted in, in the previous surveys, um, there might be a small increase uh, uh, there, but, but it doesn't look too different. With the petrols, it does look like... Uh, there's been some change in numbers, um, but it's very, very difficult to know what to make of those because we employed this uh, new distance sampling approach, whereas pr previously field workers were going out and they were pl they were basically playing calls down every burrow they could find. So it was a searching exercise, whereas this new exercise is... Now, that's really good if you've got skilled people, and there were very skilled people doing that, but although skilled people get older and eventually can't go onto islands, and of course... It then becomes problematic to get other people trained up to that. What we did is we set we set fixed transects through the habitat and fixed areas where we were playing the calls, and then we use this distance sampling approach so we can measure the distance to different calls, and from that we can use a model to estimate density. Um, now, trying to turn that approach into the previous approach is retrofit it is not very easy, and so we did do a bit of that, and it, it's a bit equivocal whether there's been any change or not. The great thing now is, is that there is a there. We have GPS fixes from every point that we surveyed, and so people can go back to those places and then repeat these surveys. So it's a kind of in in those petrol surveys, we hope it's a new baseline. I think rather than uh, something that we can compare to the historic values. Certainly, the NGOs and and the statutory agencies would would be horrified if they thought I was going to try and say there was increases in numbers or decreases in numbers based on these new approaches we took. You mentioned that uh, you were playing sounds down to the down to the bur yeah. burrows and, and like, can you can you tell us a little bit more about this? So um, yeah, so it's it's quite a complex. So we you know the cameras were used for one set. The, the cameras were used for something called a calibration, right? And that was where we were trying to work out, given if a burrow was occupied, what is the likelihood a bird responds to a call, right? I'm going to play you the kind of calls we play. I'll let you hear it. This is not the tape we played. This is... So those are Manx Shearwaters. And, um, I, have I, have I have leeches here. See if you want me to play it. You can play leeches petrol. Let me fast. That's female leeches petrol and male. And, and, and that what we, we, what we did was we played the call. That wasn't the call that I played you of the Shearwaters where was just a single. I think it was probably just a female uh, we play both male and female calls down the burrows to because obviously males are you know we might expect males and females to respond differently to calls of different sexes, 
And so uh, we play that for a standard length, and then we wait, and then we uh, we wait on a response. And um, it's just it's it's actually a really it's fantastic when the birds start calling at you when you're playing. There's something really lovely. I've got a lovely little video of us really right up in the top of one of the highest mountains in Mull with a transect, and we're playing, and it's a beautiful day. The view's incredible, and then there's this little the birds. The birds eventually, the, the shearwaters form, they're, they're little ecosystem engineers. They nest in in between rocks. But of course, over the years, their their feces builds up and then vegetation grows. And they have these beautiful, bright green, they're called shearwater greens, these bright green areas that their burrows go into. So there's really lovely colours and just really great fun. I mean, really actually got me back, really desperately back into field work again, really made me reevaluate this sitting at desk and pushing papers around so I, I, um, I really got back into field work so it was great so yeah so we play the calls we listen for a response over a standard time period then we log whether the burrows are occupied or not and uh, that that is basically I can't remember how many I've got I'll, I'll dig out the summaries but we played that that tape a tape like that something like over 11,000 times as a group of people so as you can imagine for the end of it the the actual tape became a bit of, a, a bit repetitive, you know. But anyway, it was really good fun, and so that that was. The, and and I guess the other thing that's really quite evocative about it is, of course, the birds only come ashore at night, so you only hear these things at night. And when you go when you're up there in the evening, and the birds are coming in, the noise is incredible because you know you're talking about two hundred thousand occupied burrows. That's four hundred thousand plus birds potentially. You know swirling around the mountains of rum it's a lot of animals making a lot of noise yeah uh, i i can only imagine that it was fantastic and and look this is a reoccurring theme when i when i talk with the researchers with the scientists that they all love the the field work but then that field work is like a tiny fraction of the of the actual work and the rest is in the office which everybody would prefer to be like out camping and <laughs> dealing with birds all the time Listen to how many people were used in in during those those surveys because it seems like a like a massive task. Yeah, we had a, a team of eight on rum, um, and that, so that was that was four teams of two survey, and then we had just a couple of people from uh, Nature Scott came over to help us for one day, and then we had a team of I think about twelve on Lewis and doing the the uh, the Merlin surveys, and then there was another couple of teams um, of half a dozen each I think that went round the various small islands and, and various uh, bits some of them ended up on North Rona one of the most remote islands in the British Isles to do to play the calls that Kendra just played to survey for leeches petrels and storm petrels and and that that's you know that's a hard island to get to and a hard island to get onto because it's there's no real safe landings on it and and they have to be aware of the weather at all time because you know if they don't um, if they don't um, if they don't watch the weather, um, they can get stranded on there for weeks on end. So, and there's no water and, and food or anything like that on there. So it's 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 quite a serious undertaking. Some of the the places that we went to. Wow, wow! I didn't realize. Uh, listen, guys, I, I have a, a few kind of like a uh, very basic layman questions. In the, in the first one is like we we're dealing here with seabirds. So what is, what constitutes a seabird? Is a seabird is does it need to uh, need to be in a vicinity of the shoreline for breeding, or is it like a percentage of you know life history spent on on the on the shore? And 
because you know like people go on a on a you know to the beach and they see geese and it's like well like not exactly consider geese a seabird right so there is a there is a it's not an official definition but there is a definition that tends to be widely used and it's any animal any bird that gets its food from below the low water mark so that excludes oyster catchers and curlews and brent geese and shell ducks and things like that because they're foraging intertidally so anything that that essentially it's mostly stuff that catches fish but of course there's a few seabirds that that, that eat um zooplankton and things like that some of this the small hawks eat zooplankton um but it's uh, it's generally something a bird that, that gets its food from below the low uh, what a very nice tidy definition i never yeah. thought about that but it becomes complicated because of course things like uh, loons and grebes are seabirds in winter as seabirds in winter, but freshwater birds in summer. <laughs> there's, there's always like in nature, it, it just yeah. doesn't, it just refuses yeah. to be categorized and boxed yeah. into like, oh, this is a seabird, but only in winter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Very interesting. Uh, listen, another question I have, you, you know, when I was reading uh, for to, to for this podcast, I, I noticed there are a number of birds is that they're, nesting strategies are different they're burrow nesting they're cliff nesting can you lay it out to us like are what are those uh is this really is this even a way of categorizing seabirds by the way they're nesting and if yes what are those types of uh nesting strategies yes it is i mean it's it's uh, it is i think it's a fair way of categorizing them we, we tend to think of cliff nesters and burrow nesters uh, bird nesters and boulder nesters probably get you know mashed into one. So, I, I, um, and it tends to be about body size. So the small things tend to nest in burrows and in amongst boulders because that's a way of uh, them protecting themselves from aerial predators like gulls and skuas. Um, and the slightly larger, as they get larger, they're better able to protect themselves. So things like guillemots nest re really densely on ledges. So that when gulls come in, you know, there's all the beaks pointing up at them and, and the gulls can't get in amongst them. And so uh, those are those are ledge nesters. Kittiwakes are, are small gulls, but probably a bit bigger and, and a bit harder to rob, although we know that some skewers are, are very efficient killers and robbers of, of kittiwake nests. Um, and so they're they're a bit they're a bit unusual in that respect. They tend to try and avoid places where there are those uh, predators. But I think it's largely about body size. And you can imagine getting in, you know, getting into a rock between a boulders becomes quite hard when you're the size of an albatross. Or in some statistics there on Stuart and team's work, uh, just which was, uh, well, it was all epic on various levels, but the rum stuff here, this maybe is a bit out, out of date now, Stu, but here, this will be familiar to you. Uh, team of eight spent three weeks on rum, 90 thousand meters of mountain climbed, one hundred thousand plus square meters of habitat surveyed, eleven thousand plus burrows counted, uh three and a half full days of doing playback. Now that is probably a little bit out of date, but that No, I think the, that's, uh, that, that was pretty close to what we ended up with. I mean it, the, looking at the at the Strava type uh stuff that was just epic. Well I, I lost five kilos. I lost five kilos in three weeks. <laughs> Wow, very good. Okay, the weather was nice. It was. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was. Uh, yeah, yeah. Stu says, you know, you have got, you know, the the real challenging bit was for any seabird 
population monitoring are these cryptic nocturnal species, you know, because they'll get predated if they come in during the day. So, um, you know, you go to these islands and to all intents and purposes, it's full of ra- a rabbit warren, but actually underneath your feet are all these birds sitting, incubating an egg or attending a chick or just later on in the breeding season, a chick on its own. And it's only when you get this call down and although we <laughs> we know to play a call and we get a response, you know, it's it's a most simplistic thing ever, but it's actually always not always exciting, not exciting after two weeks of it intensely, but the first day is pretty cool when you're getting a response. But it's incredibly, the fascinating bit for me here is that obviously the the big headline is that everyone knows how many are there. And Stuart's described how, you know, you, you get an estimate and you get a range either side of it. But you also are, we're also thinking of because of climate change and all of these impacts, we're, we're interested in how that changes. And there's always a tension between, well, will we improve our method? But if we improve our method and it's better, uh, would, did we just count them better? Or are there actually more? That's always a tricky, which you've talked about, is always a tricky one. But it's particularly tricky on these big, massive colonies of uh, burrow nesting species. Uh, and as Stu said, you know, they've established a baseline now. With So one way to monitor these trends uh, is to go to those GPS reference points, go to enough of them that... that uh, allow for maybe changes to the density of the colony through time. But that is a really good index of population change, which is really important in the world we live in. So that maybe, no, maybe not in 20 years' time, but maybe more frequently, we can get a better handle. So sometimes you've got to bite the bullet and go, you know what, we've got to do these, uh, maybe establish the best be- baseline possible. And if new methods come along, uh, then we do that. And the, the other thing about it is, of course, is that to arrive at that simple number at the range around it is an extremely complex statistical process, which is why people like Stu and team are doing this stuff. Uh, because, you know, the fieldwork, uh, apart from being a physical slog, uh, is fairly easy. You know, you could have a, you could give someone direction and they could probably go and do that. It's the designing that fieldwork and the making sense of it, of the data that comes out of it, is the, the real intellectual stuff that is that is very very complex. Uh, you know, hats off to them both for the physical and the intellectual input. It was a mammoth job uh, at all levels and uh, very impressive. But those other species that Stu's mentioned about the gulls and so on, the cliff nesters, they're so you know they're they're much easier. You know, they're they're not. You know, you get caves with ten thousand guillemots in it that you just can't possibly see them all. But you'll get a lot of guillemots and ledges, and you can photograph them, and you can count them, and you can do so that there. Therefore, the much more robust population counts of those, and therefore more robust uh, indices of population change on those. But the the shearwaters and petrels are a, a different beast entirely, at least in the northern hemisphere. And and, and bear in mind when uh, I I actually did there were these constant effort plots on rum that were established I think in the sixties or the seventies so there's these grids where people count all the boroughs and I, I I went up with my my supervisor my PhD supervisor just before I started my PhD in the in the mid nineties with with him and this is the days before miniaturized speakers and you know MP3s and things like that and what we had to do was we put a match upright in the entrance to the borough and we put matches upright in the entrance to all the boroughs and then go back the next day and see what ones have been knocked over and that's how wow. you know, those were occupied or not and, and that, that they, they do the people you know tracking these birds do that uh, you know yes we're we're using all sorts of fancy electronic devices but actually you might put an electronic device on the bird that's 
cutting edge to tell it GPS positions for its movements, etc. But actually, it's a very low tech um, uh, approach to actually know did the bird come home, so that whenever the bird that comes out of the do you put then a nest a nest trap on the bird because the bird that you're interested in has now got the burrow has been occupied. You go to these sites like Steer and you can imagine four hundred thousand birds flying around, and you're trying to study a particular burrow. There's so many birds going around, and they land, and then they walk ten meters, and they disappear down the burrow. Uh, you know that's a whole different end end of things, which is which is also fascinating. And these, I mean, we're all interested in movements. These things, and it wasn't part of this project that uh, that Stuart and team we're doing but as part of our work has been looking at where these things are migrating to where they're foraging i mean it's amazing but sticking on the manx waters we had manx waters from from northern ireland that were going up around rum foraging during the day so they were obviously mixing with those birds and then of course we'll know now and it's well known but over winter migrations these birds are going to off argentina uh for for our winter uh, the southern summer it's just it's amazing amazing animals altogether all the more amazing because you don't see them very much during the day and and the only time you do see them is out in the pitch black with the head torch on I, I just want to ask a quick question about those models are these are these machine learning models uh, ai or is it statistical models no they're, they're they're just statistical they're bayesian they're 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 basic statistical models so uh, the the the, the shearwater model has I've got, I'm actually looking at it up here. It has a bit where we model the uncertainty of occupancy, mm-hmm. and we a bit where we model the density. And then one of one of my PhD students, Luke, built this really really nice predictive model that essentially mapped our actual counts of burrows onto a greenness index, and then we worked out what the correlation was. Then we extrapolated that across the colony. And the other thing that was really good that he did was really clever was, of course, the problem is, is when you look at it in two dimensions, the area looks quite small, but these things are on the size of mountains like that. So actually a 20 by 20 meter square in two, to two dimensions is much, much bigger when you take into account uh, elevation. So he, put, uh, he built up an elevation model as part of that. So we, we that's where some of the area changes come from because we have a much more accurate area model. So then, once you've got that, then you can you can take your predictions and then you can and your actual estimates and multiply the whole thing up and then and you take all of that uncertainty with you, which is why you end up with these kind of wide estimates. Oh, this is uh, this is really like a monumental task. And and folks, tell me, are you are you limiting the 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 bird species, or do you have those those uh, species of interest? Um, I'm, I'm just stealing the term from one of the previous Marpam episodes. Or are you just trying to do best you can for all the species that you encounter? Well, for for, for the 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 project, those project those birds were identified by the the project coordinators, and those were birds where either the data were deficient or the sites had or sites had been missed during the large-scale survey that had happened prior to, to, to COVID. No, I think that's right, uh, Stu. The, the, those species are particularly important. Um, you know, that, that work package that Stu and team did the work on was cliff-stroke ground nesting species in these remote areas that haven't been counted, uh, many of which are really important because obviously the UK, Ireland seabird populations are, are incredibly important. Uh, globally for species including Manx shearwater leech petrels for example and then the burrow nesters which are the you know the particularly challenging ones the uh, the shearwaters and petrels uh, again you know really I've already said that the leeches and, and Manx are two of the species for which Irish and, and uh, 
uh, European storm petrel, all three of them are really important in, in, in the global context. And in Manx in particular, pretty much all of the world's breeding population are in the islands around Britain and Ireland. I mean, that's pretty much... I mean, there's a few in Iceland, there's a few down the Azores, there's a few dotted elsewhere, but this is basically the core. So uh, so uh, we found uh, at one of our study sites, we have a small colony of what we think is 40. <laughs> Just 40. Um, so you can imagine the... Um, uh, you know, you would survey them a different way. Um, and one of the ways that was kind of inspired by by Stuart and colleagues, really cool thing to be involved in was testing uh, sniffer dogs on this because, you know, one of the problems of the statistics that, that Stuart and colleagues encounter is that, you you know, so you you, you have to calibrate your, your response rate because not every bird, there could be a burrow occupied, but not every bird will answer you back. And you're dependent on that, and that varies with sight, with gear, with the sex of the bird, with the personality of the bird, perhaps, <laughs> with uh, all sorts of things. So, so obviously, like Stu and team would have done an island-specific calibration, so that you know that well. Actually, only one out of two occupied burrows actually gives you an answer. Uh, you get a dog involved, uh, and maybe so, on some islands you've got shared burrows with rabbits and puffins and even petrels. Um, I don't know that you get four cohabiting species, but you may get two. Uh, very often, um, and uh, but Mister Dog and Stuart's dog there is in the background. Uh, the the ability of these doggies to detect and differentiate is extraordinary. And we we have tested this last summer, and we're doing more this year and looking at basically tuning the dog into a scent, which the professional conservation detection dogs, Caroline Finlay and those people, are, are, are really got it nailed. There's no different to drug or weapons detection, same principles, but they can get them tuned into the smell. I mean, we, we think actually there's quite a difference between a a, a, a large chick, because they're not as oily, and in, in a burrow versus an adult uh, or an, a recently occupied burrow that, um, you know, that an adult is not in, but was in the night before and so on. And of course, if, by doing that and refining and calibrating that approach, it enables you to get some of these uncertainties away because, you know, it, it immediately, for example, very difficult but very basic factor that you extrapolate to, which is the colony size. Well, actually, if you can delimit your area quite accurately, where is the colony on the island? Well, actually, that's probably an extremely efficient way of doing it um, because the dog's ability to to wag its tail and, and signal to you or not is, is pretty incredible. Yeah, and I agree, Kendra. I think that is going to be the way forward. I think we, we've kind of we've been talking to uh, some of the teams that are thinking about how they take this forward, and 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 we've been very strongly advocating dogs removing that, removing the tape playback, because then the dogs can basically tell you how many burrows are occupied in a square. So you can take that calibration away, and all of the errors associated with that goes. You just need to get the dogs to the plots and walk the dogs inside the plots. And then secondly, um, the area, which is really important. And another thing that the dogs, I think, would be really good for is one of the problems you find is is that as you start playing tapes, um, everyone in the area around the tape starts to hear it, and that changes their likelihood of responding. So it becomes really problem when you've got highly dense colonies. You have to think of ways of spacing out the plague, whereas you don't need that because you don't prime the birds at all with a dog. The dog just sniffs; it tells you. And so I think dogs are absolutely the way to do this in the future because it will remove two big sources of uncertainty: the area and the likelihood of the response. 
Yeah, totally, totally agree, Stuart. I mean, and it's fa- I mean, I hadn't really thought of this stuff and hadn't seen the dogs in action, but we had we trialed a dog on on one large colony uh, of uh, Copeland Island, and then on uh, the very small one that said there's about forty. Well, actually, we know a pretty precise number because in that situation, it's yes, a small island and it doesn't have many Manxshire waters, but actually, it has lots of burrows that have petrels and rabbits in it. But we're actually very, very easily check the island. Go no, all the pet, all the shearwaters are in this one area, and then you can just go burrow by burrow, and you can actually do a, an absolute, absolute count of them. Uh, now that's that's the simplest version possible, of course, but it works. And the other big thing I think, having been there, was uh, infrared endoscopes. Uh, if we get infrared endoscopes, then because one of the problems with the endoscopes is that you can get. You know, once you've got an endoscope, like once you're up to here in mud and you've got an endoscope that's maybe going a metre or two, it's really hard to work out what way it's pointing or where. And then you can sometimes be, have a bird right in the centre and you're going, you think it looks like a moss, and then all of a sudden you see an eye go, go, it's the bird. Whereas if you had an infrared endoscope, you could just do it from, you know, a metre away, you would see that bird. So infrared endoscope would be a way of, of uh, ground truth in your dogs as well. I'm, I'm totally rubbish with them. And, and, you know, the other thing that I... Uh, because I, we were tracking birds this summer. Again, these Manxies and Stormies, you go out with thermal imaging equipment, total game changer because, you know, these birds are flying around in the dark. Lights do put them off. But, you know, you're, you you could sit beside a burrow with a pair of thermal, thermal imaging binoculars. Bird probably doesn't see you, doesn't really know what's going on, but it's just landed at your feet. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's your bird. And, you know, you're sitting in the dark effectively and a, a Manx Shearwater or a Manx Shearwater poo glows white. At night, it's incredible. That's a highlight of this episode. I uh, wow, especially dogs. Like, are, how dog letting you know what species of bird it, it found? Does it does it bark once or twice depending on the species, or how does that work? The the technique, and I don't want to betray any secrets from these conservation dog handlers. Now that are making, uh, you know, that they're definitely training lots of conservation dogs to do different things. But you could effectively take Stu's Labrador there. Uh, once they get into a, um, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not being ve- going to describe this very eloquently, but they get into a, a routine of finding a certain kind of neutral scent. Let, let's say it's a bunch of keys or it's Stuart's shoe or whatever. You get, there's a standard scent that they follow or stick their bone or whatever it is. Their toy is a good one. You habituate the, the animal to find that in smaller and smaller uh, scent levels. And then you start to associate that scent to the scent that is your target scent, which could be, you know, uh, dead squirrels in a forest or whatever. And then, and then that's your that's your animal tuned into the scent that's your objective. And then it's as simple as as then they're they're they they uh, you take your marker scent away. They're tuned in on finding the scent that you're interested in them, whether it be a drug or a weapon or a, a shoe or whatever it is, and then um, and then they will find that they will basically have to burrow. They will just stare at it and wag their tail. They don't give one or two barks. It's just a very simple signal, and then they'll keep doing that. Their reward is usually sometimes it's a bit of food, but usually it's to get playing with their ball. I mean, it's just the. The simplest thing, and it's incredible to see. I've just finished a course there a few weeks ago in Northern Ireland where they were doing one for the first time, seeing uh, all sorts of varieties of dogs uh, training in these basic 
basic skills that I've just spoken about and I haven't described very, very well. It's an episode, Tommy, for you some other time to talk about conservation detection dogs to some of these yes. people because it's a science in itself and it's really fascinating and a growing area, as Stu says. And that, we're only talking about seabirds here, but, you know, all sorts of applications for invasive plants, uh, other invasive animals. Uh, I mean, these ground nesting species, of course, they're really vulnerable to which is one of the big problems in seabird islands are really vulnerable to to mammalian predators so that's why they come in at night but it doesn't protect them if they're ferrets and polecats and mink and so on these islands and you know to manage these islands and protect them which has been used i think for by rspb for example in orkney now the you're using the dogs to help direct management uh, efforts to control invasive mammals so rather than putting up 15 cameras to detect if there's a rat on your island and bait and chew sticks and so on, take your dog because your dog will, will, at least if it doesn't find the animal, there's nowhere in the about an island that you might put your traps. That's fascinating. I may follow up with you, uh, Kendrew, uh, about these uh, conservation detection dogs because that you're right, that sounds like an entire different episode. Do you know, Tony, the thing I think is most surprising is that it's taken us so long to do this because... The, the the game the game bird people have been doing this for hundreds of years probably true you know, very it's, true it's been used in other other parts of of, of uh, wildlife biology for a long long time it just seems it seems so obvious it seems I, I think God, why didn't we think of this before <laughs> you know there's quite often that like why didn't we think about this before yeah that's that's uh, sometimes the simplest ideas that are staring at you are the most difficult to to realize that they are there listen guys j- just to finish off on the on the all the techniques and technology that you're using you I heard that you were also using drones to count cliff nesting birds yeah, yeah. so we were trialing that and um, again there's a lot of there's a lot of legislation involved in trying to get drones in the air and so we couldn't really run it out across the entire project and of course we did want some of these counts the old school method with cliff nesting counts has been pretty good you know it's been pretty reliable so we did trial it um, and it seemed to work quite well for the big gulls tougher for the small things because you know they're harder to pick out um, the biggest difficulty was actually getting the drone to land back on the boat because, of course, the boats, the drones have a known home and the boats move and drift during the flights and the drones are trying to land in the sea while the guys are trying to get them aboard the boat. So I think it, the drones would definitely work well for some of the big gull colonies, essentially the ones on, nesting on the tops of cliffs. And these, those are actually quite hard to count. When you're in a boat in the water, you can just usually see one or two birds up at the edge so sending a drone up to do the cliff tops is probably the way we'll end up doing those. There's a, there's a few places that that could work. Um, but less useful for the the dense nesting guillemots and razorbills and things de- nesting densely on cliffs just because it's hard to pick out individuals. And also it can be quite tricky. You know, guillemots and razorbills are slightly different colour, but, you, you know, you need really good light just to see those colours well. And at some point it's it becomes a law of diminishing returns in that you might as well just count them while you're on the ground rather than doing the film and then going back and trying to work out whether something's a guillemot or is about and you were using like a like a uh you know like a consumer drones yeah little mavic um okay drone um i i think we're allowed to mention <laughs> brand names i guess but yeah little mavic and um but but we had professional pilots because they were of a size that required um 
uh, a drone license to fly. So we we had to get uh, drone pilots in, and then of course we also had to get loads of licenses off the statute agencies to fly drones in areas where they're. Hmm. So I think unless unless uh, I can see it being well, I guess because it was it's only been done a few times, I think probably that's why they were quite tentative about it. I think it might be a bit easier now. Certainly, Nature Scott were very interested in it, and and you know I imagine they will go forward with some of that stuff. Yeah, yeah, especially that if you're if you're uh, uh, can use bigger commercial drones that you can put you know a lot of equipment like you say like a thermal vision yeah. thermal vision or or other stuff. Yeah, um, that could be a, a really game changer. Yeah, the, the big issue with with the, the the bigger drones is that you can't fly them as close to the colonies because we were we we're also looking at the disturbance the drones were causing, and of course the small ones are less likely to cause disturbance, and um, the big ones more likely. And of course, when you start causing disturbance, then people start getting nervous. Well, one, if you scare you, you don't want to scare the birds off, you want to count, and two, people start getting nervous about you know predators moving in, nicking eggs, and things like that. So it's, it, there's a bit of a trade off there. You could use then those those really tiny, tiny whoop drones, but then they're they're very prone to the winds and so on. I guess there's a lot a lot of winds in those in those habitats. Yes. Wow, that was uh, that was fantastic. The ultimate Tommy here, of course, is a big drone that carries your scent dog to your remote island, and the dog moves <laughs> it all by itself, collects it, and brings it back. And we call just. <laughs> I was going to say that exactly. Of course, can you? <laughs> Kendrew, that would utterly negate why we do it. And we, we, you know, this is the tragedy of it is that probably lots of the reasons these rather archaic approaches remain is because people really have good fun doing it. And it was fantastic fun, you know, being <laughs> in some really wild places, seeing some fantastic animals, some amazing landscapes. You know, it was, it's very, as I said at the start, it was just life affirming for me. It really got me back into biology, you know. Ah, ah. Where, you were, where you guys were camping on those islands? Yeah, we camped, uh, camped on rum. Uh, we, well, we 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 Airbnb'd on on Lewis, but we camped on rum. Wow, yeah, I'm not. I'm... There's a little, there's a little, there's a little survey hut. It's called the Shearwater Hut um, up in the mountains. We spent a few nights up there because one of the mountains we had to get to was was quite a long walk from the the base camp, and so we we camped up in the mountains with the Shearwaters a few nights as well, which was really lovely. Wow, I can I can only imagine. I can only imagine. That is that is uh what we all uh like to do. Listen folks, so um just uh just to wrap this off, uh I would like to ask you about um the biggest impact on those birds and you know, one thing that you know, there, there are there are uh, ones that people heard about. Obviously, human disturbance, uh, plastic in the ocean. You know, climate change obviously is a big one. But I also uh, read somewhere that uh, manager the the way the fisheries are managed also can impact birds. Can you elaborate on 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 those methods and and maybe start with the you know how different types of fisheries manager management impact seabirds? Yeah, well, I, I think probably if you were to ask a seabird biologist, uh, um, and there are such things as seabird biologists, uh, what number one was would it probably be fisheries? I think would be the number one threat. Number one. Yeah, I think so. Uh, in two ways: one through entanglement and gear, because seabirds get attracted to fishing vessels, and then they get caught up. So I think all bar one of the world's albatrosses are are red listed because, and it's largely because of interactions with fisheries. Um, there's lots of work been going on. Those those are quite often long line fisheries, and there's a lot of working on to try and mitigate uh, interactions, such as 
you know, the lines get shot underwater. They've got these pods that only release once the bait's underwater. There's a whole lot of things going on there. So there's a lot of work going on about that. But we still get entanglement uh, in nets and our birds, gannets diving into the cod end of nets as they've been drawing and get caught up and killed. Um, so, so direct entanglement with gear and interaction with gear is one way. But I guess uh, um, if you you only have to know that, this, that there's a statistic going around from about 20 years ago where people worked out that the entire seabed of the North Sea was trawled on average three times a year. Wow! Right. So that kind of fishing effort cannot do anything positive for seabirds, right? And those those effects are cascading. Up, you know, just because they're not catching maybe the fish that the seabirds are eating, you can still have cascading effects up through uh, through ecosystems. And so, fisheries have uh, got a kind of um, chimeric role they play because, in some instances, birds are doing really well because of fisheries. So, the discarding from the discarding policy that the, the European Commons Fisheries Policy brought in meant that things like fulmers probably and many of the gulls and scavenging species did really well, including things like gannets probably took a big advantage of it. But also the removal of fish, uh, the removal of uh, some of the smaller fish species, um, and, and certainly there was there was there was times in the uh, in, in you know maybe thirty years ago where people were removing things like sand eels for fish meal, yeah. and in fact the Danes actually had a sand eel oil fired power station at one point. Believe it or not, <laughs> that's long gone now. But I think there was evidence that the removal of those those prey fish had some impact on on uh, breeding seabirds that are feeding on the smaller things. So because we you know our, our marine food webs are interconnected, removal of one part of it tends to cause you know, tumbling and cascades that you really can't really predict. So I think fishing probably is a number one threat to seabirds, um, either via entanglement or by changing the, the the food webs that they're feeding in. Well, now that answers the question. I would agree in that. I mean, that, that could well be the filmer declines that Stuart has referred to that they detected in the west coast of Scotland has probably reflected that impact, um, you know, because they some evidence to show that they are interacting with longline fisheries just like the albatrosses so the same thing is happening in the northern north atlantic as well perhaps with them and uh yeah it's very worrying which is why you know this interreg project uh is so important because you you, you gotta we can't monitor these things as as frequently as we would like because it's such a labor-intensive and complex procedure but at least you've got to do these uh large um health checks you've got to do smaller scale annual monitoring and annual productivity monitoring of the seabirds and obviously all this other work which is where these occasional bigger projects come in as they're not just looking at the seabirds they're looking at fishes they're looking at climate change they're looking at oceanography they're looking at uh management and they're looking and of course management entails working with the other stakeholders the including very importantly the fishing community uh, people's livelihoods, trying to influence policy at a at a European level, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, it's all part of one big process. And, and I think, especially in, in things like the non-breeding season, many of our birds are in are in places like West Africa where there are huge unregulated fisheries going on, and so it might not just be you know what happens in the North Sea; it could be what happens in other parts of the world that 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 really cause problems with these things. So, there's there's a huge unregulated fishery off the coast of Senegal where there's boats from all over the world exploiting it. And, of course, when we track get things like gannets and skewers, they all end up down there. They all end up round off there because, of course, that's where 
partly possibly because that's where the fishing boats are, but also that's where the fish are as well. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a, a typical problem with those migrating species, right? That the, you can do all the management and protection measures in one place, and then they fly somewhere else, and you know everything is uh, not regulated. Uh, what would be the second one, uh, second biggest impact? Would it be climate change after fisheries? I think climate probably, yeah. So there's there's, there's certainly evidence um, that that there, the the northern distributions of some of these important prey fishes are moving. So they're moving slowly northwards. So I think there's evidence from um, Shetland and Iceland that some things are are, are slowly moving northwards, and that will obviously now now the seabirds may be able to respond to that by shifting. Uh, shifting their distributions, um, but I think uh, climate is going to have a huge impact on this planet, and and it's it's quite hard to predict what it might mean for some of these species. But certainly, if if important prey species distributions move offshore or further north, then we will lose seabirds locally, um, and we may lose them if they can't find places to breed or move to. Then we may lose them uh, more in a, in a more widespread manner. Right, and have you seen any any uh, indications of impact climate change impacts locally, in terms of you know drier seasons or anything like that? Does does this has any impact on on those birds? It's really hard to measure these things because the 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 big the big problem we've got with seabirds is they live so long, and 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 of course, so um, effects are quite hard to effects of climate are quite hard to detect over the, you know, we've only been really studying these things for about 40 or 50 years and that's really t maybe one and a half lifespans. So actually it's quite hard to, to really detect effects of climate change. But we know from things like from other parts of the world, uh, like um, off the West coast of North and South America, um, El Nino years have a huge impact on, on, on seabird productivity. Now the seabirds there are geared to that. They, they are evolved to to deal with um, periods of low productivity. So they, they just have years where there's big die-offs and they don't breed, and then other years where they produce loads and loads of offspring. So they're, they're a bit different. But we know climate can influence uh, breeding biology of, of a number of species, so there's no reason why it shouldn't be influencing it. It's just quite hard to detect. That's the problem. Um, okay, and, and tell me whether... Uh, disturbance by humans, human activities is this is this playing a big part in um, you know impacts or or uh, threats that those seabirds are facing? Um, because you know you, you mentioned they're on the islands, but not all not not all of them are are on the island. So I, I guess the, I'm I'm just curious. I guess the question has a two parts in general seabirds and their impact of of you know humans pushing in with their you know uh, leisure activities and and uh, you know expanding population and whether this has any impact on those um, uh, birds nesting on the islands and so on or are they at least protected from from this i think for the most part um access is at the big places is quite tightly controlled and I think quite well controlled. So, you know, the big places you'd think of like Bempton Cliffs or some of the, 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 so the big, you know, English mainland colonies, the access to the animals is, is pretty well core, you know, choreographed. So I think disturbance is probably minimized in a lot of these places. And I would probably argue that many of the other places, there may be small scale disturbance effects, but 
the 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 visitation rates are low enough that it doesn't really create too many problems. I can't really think of any examples. I mean, we we do know that that uh, there's there was there was some heart rate loggers heart rate monitor studies people did with uh, skewers. I never I know it was ever published, but they showed that when these birds would sit tight in their nests, but when people approached them, their heart rates would go through the roof. You know, they would really start beating really fast. So although they looked calm. They were, you know, screaming inside, and one can imagine that could be that could be quite detrimental over long periods. Um, certainly, when they removed, there was a on the Bass Rock. There used to be a path that went over to the the lighthouse on the far side that you could walk across, and then they stopped access to the island and stopped people walking. It. And the gannets are all over that path, whereas they used to be quite far away from it. So that does suggest that maybe human activity was preventing them from from moving on to it, but. I don't think that human disturbance is one of the biggest issues. I, you know, I think probably, you know, we, we haven't spoken about wind farms. Wind farms probably another, maybe a, an important issue. It's still, I think the jury's out a bit, a, a bit on wind farms, um, because we simply don't know enough about how likely the animals are to collide with them or what the cost of avoiding them is. That um, we need to do a lot more work on that. But I, I don't think human disturbance, direct disturbance by humans is a huge issue. But there will be examples, doubtless, where somebody's driven a boat up and scared everything off a ledge and all the eggs have fallen off. There doubtless will be examples of that. I just think at a population level, it's probably not that important. Oh, gotcha. So lo so locally, right? Like the oyster yeah. catchers yeah. disturbed by surfers or stuff like yeah. that. It's local, yeah. but not on the population level. You mentioned those wind farms. You, may, you mean those offshore wind farms? Yeah, offshore wind's a big... Uh, is a, is, is, has raised a lot of concern amongst people working on seabirds because... Of the potential for collisions and and the and basically the the cost of trying to fly around them. So there's an awful lot of work being going on as far as that goes, but we still don't know. The problem is, is it's one of those horrible things where you've actually got to do the experiment to know what the answer is, because we still don't really know how likely the birds are to collide with them. They're very good at seeing them and they're very good at avoiding them, but we we simply don't know what the likelihood of collision is very well. And we also do not know uh, that what the costs are associated with a void. So, assuming they see them, they have to fly around them. So, you know, you know, what 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 is the cost associated with that? You know, is there an energetic cost? Is there a lost opportunity? We just don't know enough of that. I mean, there's lots of people working on that and modelling that, but there's still a lot of uncertainty uh, in that. But but wind farms would be another certainly concern. Whether it's a whether it's a major concern is 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 not clear. All right, um, guys, I'm going to finish off with the question I always finishing off and I'm always asking this question. Uh, if you if you listen to the previous episode of the podcast, you probably know already what's coming. And my question is like, what as, as people who are on the forefront of working with wildlife animals and see, you know, all the changes that are going on and impacts, you know, of everything that we just discussed, how do you see the future play out? of you know oceans birds wildlife um are you are you optimists are you pessimists are you you know like what what's your what are your thoughts on this i would say I, i'm very much on the fence i'm not an optimist or a pessimist i mean put it this way in 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 no matter what happens in a million years there'll be stuff here right no matter what <laughs> happens something will be here right um what that might be is 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 the thing that we're uncertain about. But I, I think 
I feel quite, although I don't think people are moving fast enough, I feel quite encouraged by the fact that we have uh, we have cops. You know, we actually have people discussing these things and trying to do something. They're maybe not doing enough, but they're trying to do something which is better than doing nothing. Um, whether we whether we uh, get there in time to stop mass extinctions or not, I'm not sure. But but at least we'll we will stop it being as bad as it could be if we don't do anything. And um, I think with respect to seabirds, I think they're probably buffered a bit because they are, you know, the the, the sea is this great buffering thing for our earth it you know it stabilizes temperature you know and so i think seabirds might be better buffered although there is evidence that the increasing winds may be good for some species and bad for us so there will be losers and winners in, in that but i think in general um I, I i'm hopeful that that things won't get too bad i think people will people will hopefully wake up to the problem before it's too late still i i pencil you as an optimist Yes. Check. Andrew, <laughs> how about you? Well, I, I, I think um, I think I'll echo. I'll probably be in the same category. You can you could get yourself. I like Stu work on all sorts of different birds and all sorts of different habitats and migrants and residents and wee birds and big birds and seabirds and raptors and all sorts of things. And at every turn, there's a depressing story because something is you know, the world on land and sea is in, a, is in certainly a very bad shape. But you can't, we can't afford to uh, dwell on the negatives. Otherwise, we'd never get out of the hole that we're in. And it's people like Stu and me and our colleagues uh, that have a role to play. And sometimes it's showing people a seabird colony and how fascinating it is. Um, and sometimes it's uh, like Stu would be doing, you know, it's advancing scientific knowledge on something. Sometimes it's it's informing politicians in Brussels about something or whatever. But we've got a really important role that is a whole lot of fun on the journey uh, and is fascinating, but to try and, and bring this to people to bring about change to get us out of that uh, otherwise depressing hole we're in. Um, and there's nothing else but to roll up the sleeves and just keep at it. And we've always got the trump card of the puffin, right? We can't. We we'd stop. We could stop everything if we said puffins were going to extinct. People would people would, would do everything to save them. <laughs> I wish. I wish that's true. I wish that's true, guys. Thank you very much. It was very interesting, and it was a pleasure talking with you. Nice to talk to you, Tommy. Likewise. Thanks. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave me five-star rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. This is great help for me and for the podcast. And while you're already there, don't forget to subscribe to my newsletter. The link is in the description of the show. 